Hi, I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir in Washington, D.C. this morning with my sister, Debbie Shore, co-founder of Share Strength. Hey, Deb. Hi. Thanks for being back here. Um, and two guests who I think folks are going to find pretty amazing. Uh, Melissa DiArabian, a longtime friend and supporter of Share Our Strength, known to the rest of the world as a Food Network star since 2009, um, and uh, a cookbook author and just an amazing person. Melissa, we're glad you're here. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Thanks. And you're going to have to tell us when we get started what you're doing in Washington, D.C., because you're not usually here, but we're glad you are today. I'm glad I'm here and today, this, too. And this year. Yes. <laughs> um, and Jim Gibbons, CEO of Goodwill Industries, uh, based in Rockville, Maryland. Uh, previously, uh, he's been at uh, Goodwill since, I think, 2008 previously uh, with National uh, Industries for the Blind, uh, Harvard Business School graduate, AT&T experience. Um, Jim, you've got an amazing story. We're glad you're with us. Yeah, it's great to be here. And uh, uh, it's been great being in the D.C. area and a part of Goodwill Industries International. Well, thanks. Uh, there's so many things I want to talk to you guys about. And, you know, what we usually talk about on Add Passion and Stir is kind of what folks are doing in the intersection between food and a lot of issues that we care about, uh, a lot of entrepreneurship in the kind of the civic space and in the nonprofit space. Um, and we always start by asking people for a little bit of background on their own story, how they came to be doing what they're doing. I think in addition to what each of you is doing now, uh, your own personal stories, probably, which I know you've told many times, and I hope you'll don't mind telling one more time. I think they're going to be of such interest to people in terms of just challenges that you've dealt with and that you've overcome. Um, let's start with uh, you, Jim. Your uh, first blind uh, a, a student at the Harvard Business School. You've been the CEO of a number of organizations. Um, that couldn't have been an easy road, but you're an unbelievable success story. Um, Tell us how things got started for you and how you came to be doing what you're doing. Sure, sure. I uh, I grew up in the Midwest in Indianapolis. I'm the youngest of eight children. Wow. Uh, went to Purdue University to study engineering. Uh, my father was an engineer. My brother was an engineer. And I think everybody said, you know, you're pretty good in math and science. Be an engineer and get a job. And uh, so I went to Purdue and... Uh, as I was uh, working through uh, the industrial engineering uh, program there, uh, my senior year came and I interviewed with lots of companies and I got lots of rejection letters. Uh, and I was having a tough time selling the blind engineer, you know, competing with, you know, pretty ser serious competition. But I didn't, wasn't feeling like I could get over that blind thing. And I finally got two offers after I graduated from big companies, AT&T and IBM, and I went to AT&T. So I, serve, I served in a variety of roles at AT&T for a number of years, uh, finance, mergers and acquisitions, um, product management, operations, uh, and then uh, got an opportunity to uh, run a division as president uh, out in Phoenix, Arizona. And then I got recruited uh, to... Uh, by the search firm to join National Industries for the Blind, and that's where I uh, kind of learned about the social enterprise model. I didn't, I'd never heard the word social enterprise, but I said, oh, how do you use business school skills to have impact? And in this particular case, as a blind person, this was, you know, how do you go have uh, direct impact on the lives of people who are blind through business? Uh, and so I served as the president and CEO there for 10 years, uh, and then... Uh, I've been with Goodwill Industries International uh, for 10 years now and 
Goodwill is an amazing organization, a network of uh, amazing social entrepreneurs uh, throughout the U.S., Canada, and in 13 other countries, uh, a fabulous brand and great community impact every day. So that's kind of how I got here. So it sounds like except for the engineering thing, there's not much that um, your uh, being blind has prevented you from doing. It at least it doesn't seem that way. I'm sure there have been challenges and personal challenges along the road. And, and were you born blind or did you lose your sight at a young age? Oh, I uh, started losing my sight in third grade. I was probably around eight and totally blind when I was maybe 20, 21, junior year in college, right around that time frame. And, you know, there certainly have been challenges, personal challenges, you know, like so many, you know, we all have our uh, our challenges, our demons and our imperfections. And, you know, it's a constant um, focus on how to, you know, improve and adapt and, and do the best that I can do. Uh, and I'm guessing that um, you're also an inspiration, particularly in Goodwill Industries, where you're working with so many people who have challenges of one type or another, uh, your own story must be, aside just from your leadership, your very effective leadership, your own story must really inspire people to realize that they can be in a position of leadership this way. Yeah, well, I hope that uh, through my uh, my work and, and who I am that it offers uh, a level of hope that no matter what your disability or what your barrier to employment or opportunity is, that you know, you can overcome that, and it takes it takes a little bit of tenacity and a little bit of hard work, and, you know, that stick-to-itiveness matters. Um, let's get Melissa into this conversation. Melissa, uh, your website, which I think is just melissadarabian.com, which is a... It's dot .net. Dot .net. Yes, there's like a 17-year-old kid in upstate New York who's been squatting dot .com He's for about yours. nine years and okay. wants like $75,000. So until no, then, that. Uh, dot .net. <laughs> um, well, there's there's a lot of great things on the website, uh, including uh, a section called Causes I Love. Um, and one of them is Share Our Strength's No Kid Hungry campaign. The other is the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Um, and one of the things you talk about in the explanation for Causes I Love is your own background, both kind of growing up poor, uh, having a mom who committed suicide, I think, when you were 20. Um, talk to us a little bit about your childhood and particularly how it's connected you to the work that you're doing now? Um, well, yeah. So my childhood was um, uh, was, was sort of an interesting one um, to me in that the, the sort of the main thrust of my childhood was I, I remember being poor. Um, my parents were divorced when I was a couple months old. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Tucson, Arizona. My okay. mom was a, a college student at University of Arizona. And then she ended up going to medical school also there. So I grew up in a very um, lower middle class neighborhood, um, raised by a single mom putting herself through college and eventually through medical school. Um, it was my sister and me and, and my mom, the three of us. And we we truly had no money. I mean, there were days where we would open up the fridge and there would be, you know, one or two jars in in the fridge. I remember one one day we opened up the fridge and there was just a jar of pickles. And um, and it wasn't even a full jar and none of us even really liked pickles. I think that's why it sort of outlasted everything else in the fridge because nobody wanted it. And I remember that night when we had no pickles, my mom had an idea. 
Um, and that was that we would take – she had these blocks of wax that she had bought like at a secondhand store or something. Um, and so we took these blocks of wax and we melted them down and colored them and then filled old jelly jars with these this melted colored wax and made these layered candles that were sort of popular in the 70s. And we took them over to, um, you know, we did that like all night, like, you know, into the into the morning hours. And the next morning we took them to a secondhand store and they bought them from us. Um, and then we took that money and we went and we bought food. And that, that story I think sticks in my mind because um, – First of all, it taught me it taught me the power of working hard. It taught me the power of coming together. And specifically, I think it taught me, although I didn't know it at the time, the power of women coming together and the power of us working together as a team for a common goal. And so um, that that stays in my mind as the sort of work ethic that my mom instilled in us that we will work hard and that we will we will still be able to eat and, and come together. Um, so, yeah, so I grew up with very little money, you know, food stamps. Um, this, you know, that kind of landscape was very common to me. Um, all the while, my mom was putting herself through college and putting herself through medical school. So there's always a constant message of hope and, and of work hard. And, and I ended up on um, the lunch program through the grace of a wonderful woman who worked at my elementary school. Um, and so I know what it is to be in a classroom hungry, and I know what it is to be in a classroom not hungry. And I will tell you I choose not hungry. And I choose not hungry um, because I believe that it's thanks to that woman that I had a full stomach, that I was able to get the education that I had and become an A student and go to college, go to graduate school, do all these things. And I don't I don't know that I would have been able to do have done that without food in my stomach, but I know that that food in my stomach really helped me on that trajectory. How, how did, did she you feel, actually, oh, inter- I was just going to ask how she actually intervened, the woman who helped you at school. And oh, then yeah, okay, perfect. Um, so this this secretary, this woman um, who worked in my elementary school, who probably has no idea, is probably no longer alive, but probably even in her life didn't realize the impact that she had on me. Um, I'll back up and tell you that in, in our elementary school, there was a policy that if you forgot your lunch, you got to go to the office and get a pass for a free lunch. But it was really an IOU. It wasn't a free lunch. You were to take the IOU home and your parents would then turn in the 45 cents the next day. It was sort of an advance on, on your lunch account, as it were. And um, I quickly learned that the days where I didn't have a lunch um, that if I had forgotten the lunch, and I'm using air quotes, forgotten the lunch, that meant that I could go to the office and get a free lunch. And and he, I knew, I knew when I was accepting those IOUs, I knew that I couldn't pay them back. But when you're hungry, you don't care. You need food. So I would go and I would get these IOUs that I knew I could never show my mom because it would upset her and she would never be able to pay it back. But I also knew that four minutes later, I would be having a hot lunch in my stomach and that I could focus in school. And so it became this routine of me forgetting my lunch. And I would sort of space it out, like, how many times a week can I get away with this before someone yells at me? And then one day, 
I got called to the principal's office, and I knew, I knew it was up. I knew my big plan was over, and I was going to get yelled at. And I went into the principal's office, and the lady who sits there, the receptionist at the principal's office, who, who I, I fully expected to yell at me, um, instead of yelling at me, she asked me if I would be interested in this new program where I would serve lunch to the the, the kids um, during the lunch hour and then during the recess, they would give me a free lunch. Oh. So it was sort of this. And I, the truth is, I don't even know if she made this up. I don't even I, I, I don't I didn't see any other kids on this program, but I jumped on the program because it meant I would get a free lunch right. every single day. And it wasn't even just a free lunch. I actually really enjoyed serving the lunch. And that was like me touching food. Like, you know, that's back when the jello was like really hard and like in a square. And like I would pick it up, like I put on a glove and I would like pick up the hunk of jello and put it on the plate for, you know, each platter that went by um, each tray. And that was that was my first time really working in food and earning what I ate. And that that little that little gesture from this woman, not shaming me, but connecting with right. me, really changed the trajectory, mm. I think, of my entire life. And you were how old? How old at the time? I must have been nine. Okay. We've only got one handkerchief. We're going to pass it around. Oh, yes. It's no. clean. I just got it. It's brand new. <laughs> we're going to share it because we share here. Debbie, what were you well, going to ask? Well, I was just thinking about the stigma that you must have felt and that you were afraid that your mother would feel right about this which is of course the you know one of the biggest reasons why even though you know millions of kids are uh, eligible for school meals that they don't get them because of the stigma so this woman you know did this incredible thing for you as you said she probably doesn't even know but um, that you know for for our no canary campaign it's one of the one of the biggest barriers is feeling stigmatized Mm-hmm. And which is one of the reasons why I love the breakfast after the bell exactly. that, you know, that everybody gets fed. This and she gave you point. a job. She gave you a little job yeah. to do, yeah. which meant you kind of deserved that, you know, or you felt at least more comfortable. I, I felt that, I, yeah, I, I felt a sense of, of efficacy and right. of belonging and honestly of pride. Um, right. I, I went in there every day and put on that hairnet with joy in my heart. Um, and I, I think that's something we forget is people People want to work, want to belong. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think that was a big yeah, piece of it. It, yeah. it was it was the um, the lack of shame, but of the honor um, that you know I'm that working. she gave me, mm-hmm. yeah. and, so, and, and the respect. So, Jim yeah. Gibbons, you must feel like we're singing your song here in terms of people want to work, people want to have that uh, dignity and purpose. That's really what Goodwill Industries is all about on a on a macro scale. I'm thinking just about how. Your uh, personal story, Melissa, has to be so representative of the way so many people that you serve, Jim, kind of, kind of come into Goodwill Industries, but then leave in a much stronger position. Yeah, you know, it's a it's an amazing thing, and you know, at Goodwill, we we often will use the the old expression about teach a person to fish versus give a person a fish. But you know, you got to give a person a fish for today. You know, when we look at building capacity and capabilities we got to realize that it's a whole person there, and that whole person has got to be served, and that could uh, involve everything from the job skills work to how does somebody, how is somebody, you know, surviving and navigating through the challenges of life, and whether that's food or transportation or daycare. All of those challenges, uh, you know, come into a person's life who's struggling, and when you look at a person as an entire person, you're able to actually help them 
overcome those challenges. But Melissa's story is extraordinarily powerful. And I think, you know, she's not alone. She's not Mm -hmm. alone today. What's a, you know, kind of a typical example of somebody, what their issues are and how goodwill makes a difference in their lives? Well, I tell you, uh, when you look across the, the, the network of Goodwills, and each Goodwill is an independent organization, so they morph to the needs of their community. And I think that's the powerful thing about this networked model of, of autonomous organizations is it gives them the freedom and the power uh, to meet their community needs. So there's probably never a typical story. Uh, but I can tell you a story of a woman out in Tacoma, and you know she was a a grandmother raising a child a grandchild with a disability alone. She was a receptionist, and she acquired a kind of a vocal cord disorder and could no longer work as a receptionist. and And she decided, you know, what do I do now? And she joined a, a culinary program at the Goodwill there in Tacoma. It was in Tacoma, Washington. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. In Tacoma, Washington. And that program is really designed to help folks enter into the culinary and the food and the restaurant and the hospitality space. And so she did the three-month program, also worked with uh, the the organization in terms of job readiness and skills and placement. And now she works at a middle school. The laughter of the kids every day helps fulfill her life, and she's working hard in, in, an, in a space that she really enjoys uh, and um it's it's been a it's been a wonderful transition for her now you know that happens day in and day out across many sectors many programs but working with individuals and trying to meet the individuals where they are so that the goodwill programming can be uh made meaningful to them in terms of their their life goals and their job search Jim, I'm wondering, is there a basic description of the clientele? I mean, I'm sure it's very varied, but are these people that have been in generational poverty? Are they kind of in and out, in between? It really is a range of challenges to employment, barriers to employment, ranging from folks who need a second chance, a young man who found himself on the wrong side of the law, to the the uh, person with a disability, to a person who lacks an education, and and even folks who have been dislocated. So they've had a job. Uh, they've worked in uh, a company for years and years and years, and that company left the community. And they've got to retrain, reskill. So it's a pretty broad base. Uh, and so the Goodwills will work with job seekers on how to update their resumes and how to make themselves marketable to intensive placement programs, to intensive training programs. Never one size fits all. It's, and that's really that, the, that ability to morph to community needs yeah. So what are the needs of your community? What are the other organizations in the community doing? How do you how do you close the gap and meet the need? And then where are the opportunities? Because training without opportunities doesn't help. So how do you link to the sectors that are hiring and make sure that you're putting programming in place that you can have an end result, which is getting a person uh, to economic independence and employment? So, you know, one size fits all, I find, in the, in the world of people seems to, never, seems to never be the answer. Jim, I would ask, is there a kind of a, a, a simplified way to explain the structure of Goodwills? You've described it as an organization of autonomous organizations. What's the best way for the average person to understand it? I think you think about Goodwill as community-based organizations. There's 100 
uh, and 61 Goodwills in the United States and Canada. Each has their own community-based board of directors, and they're fiercely independent organizations committed to their communities. So Goodwill Industries International uh, exists as kind of an association, but a membership model, and each of those Goodwills are a member of Goodwill Industries International. And so my role is really one of service to the Goodwills across the, the globe, and the leadership role is really one of leading from east to west, not north to south. It's not top-down. It's, it's really leading through influence and value-added services. Melissa, there were um, so many things that were poignant about the story you were sharing. One of them to me was that you know often people look back and they realize that when they were younger uh, that their family was poor. They didn't realize it at the time. Uh, you, you knew it when you were living it, even as a young child, it, it seems like, right? I mean, that was... That was your reality, and you were present to it and and understood that. I, I did realize it probably later on than one might think. Um, but even in my neighborhood, people had lunches to take to school. I think it I think it was school lunch that made me realize hmm. that I was poor. And when I saw how how much that stressed out my mom. You know, even just the idea of packing lunches to the point where um, and she was a full time student. But even as a very at a very young age, I was in charge of my own lunch. I almost think that in some ways it stressed my mom out so much that I think she as a coping mechanism and perhaps not a great one passed off the duty to my sister and to me. And we you know, we would have one envelope of that. That lunch meat, you know, the, the thin pressed lunch meat that's not like an actual slice of meat, but like a compilation of lots of meats pressed together, you know, that I remember you would get for like 39 cents for an envelope. And it was like really like see-through slices of meat. And we were allocated really one of those a day per kit for, for our sandwiches. And even then, it, there weren't 10 slices. There were only like, you know, seven or eight in the packet. And so we had to allocate it, but it did mean that one day a week there was no meat for the lunch, and and, and calling it meat is kind of a joke. So um, I think I realized by going to my school, which was not in, you know, I wasn't at like some great prep school. I was, you know, in a lower middle class neighborhood, um, and even they all had things like Fritos. Yeah, I remember Fritos. Fritos were like, like. Katie Rudder and her Fritos every single day. It was a miracle to me that there was something in a package like that. It was a miracle to me that people showed up with meat in their sandwiches every single day. And some days I just had an apple because the 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 see through meat was gone for the week. Moms must be moms must just be wired to stress over these things uh, at, at all at all ages and at all levels. And I think that. That's what makes moms so amazing, and it makes them, for sure, a strength, at least, a, r- a really powerful force and powerful advocates. I think about the advocate that you are. I think and you're you've right. Got, you've got four daughters, right? Yeah, I do have four daughters, and I think that you're touching on something which is um, also part of what gives food its special status, um, that when we cannot provide food for our kids— it's not the same thing as not being able to give them the latest pair of tennis shoes. Or take them to Disney World. You know, but. it's it's so ingrained with our 
self-esteem into who we are. I think at a very core level, we as parents, as people, I think, but as parents, we recognize that food has special status in this world in that it is an equalizing force. We all need food to survive. It is an equalizing force in that at a very molecular level, we're all participating in the same food system. So if we share a meal together and we're all eating from the same roast, at a very intimate level, we have that lamb, that lamb's DNA is now inside all of our bodies creating who we are. Food has special status. So when we, uh, when we can't provide it for our kids, the potential for shame and stigma is very high. So it's, um, it's a very um, uh, unique um, need that we have because it, it unites us. It, um, you know, culturally, cellular, cellularly, um, you know, socially, uh, so many levels food um, plays in all of our lives. And there are very few things in this world that do that. And that's why it's so important that we that we feed the kids when 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 there is a child in this country who doesn't get to eat. I take it personally. I take it deeply in because no no child should not have access to this basic fundamental unifying equalizing um thing called food you know melissa the uh, interesting thing as you talk through you know your story and your passion as you talked about opening the refrigerator and there's only pickles and then you talked about the experience with the school for the meals it, you know kind of speaks to hope and when you when the when it's only pickles, maybe there's not as much hope. And when when there's a an opportunity or a, a certainty that you'll be nourished, you you can then build on that hope. And so absent that, and when you think about food and hunger and the necessity, you know, it's the basics. You know, absent that, then all of the other stuff is really tough to overcome. So your story is is amazing. If I can pause just for a moment right there and point out that. Um, you know, to anybody who's listening, if this sounds like the right thing to do for us to feed our kids uh, as a country, absolutely. It is, I assure you, the right thing to do. However, as a business person, I would also say it is the smart thing to do. And as a citizen of this country, I would also say it is the smart thing to do because we invest so much in education. We care so much about where our kids are getting educated, where our country is getting educated, how our schools are faring compared to, you know, Norway or Korea or what the social costs are. We care so much about education. And I can tell you from firsthand experience that all the money and care that we put into education as this country in the in this country will not matter if the children are hungry sitting in the classroom. So in order to protect that investment, let's do the full investment of getting those kids fed if we're going to talk about just a, an economic argument. Uh, Melissa, you kind of left us at, almost at the doorstep or the entryway. Um, I want to hear how you went from being that little girl who was helping in the cafeteria to a woman who has her own show on the Food Network. 
What what was that? The rest of that journey like? um, I was a very good student. I did go to college. I um, went off and and earned my MBA and then worked in strategy and finance. Um, I worked as a consultant for a number of years. I worked for the Walt Disney Company for a number of years in finance and strategy. Um, Led led a group um, over in Paris, over at Euro Disney, um, the merchandise finance group, and did that for several years. And that's where I met my husband. And um, and. That's then after we were married, I became a stay-at-home mom. I had four daughters in two and a half years, so you can get pregnant while breastfeeding. Just a a little tip for everybody. And um, and when I had those four kids, I became a stay-at-home mom. Twins, because that would be pretty hard to do. Yes, you didn't have twins. Yes, the the first two were twelve months apart, then eighteen months until I had the twins. So two and a half years, four kids. and then I became a stay-at-home mom because um, who's taking that on other than the mother? Um, and then when the twins were just about a year old, so I had a three-year-old, a two-year-old, and then two almost one-year-olds, um, I started kind of getting an itch to 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 do something. I, I actually said to my husband, are we supposed to have a fifth child? Because um, if so, that's a shame. I already had my tubes tied. <laughs> what now? And uh, my husband said wisely. You know, maybe it's not a child you're um, you're after. Maybe it's a project. Maybe you just need to um, kind of do something. And so that's when I started doing um, local speaking in the. I was living in the Dallas area. I did spoke local speaking about cost saving measures um, in the household. Everything from in the kitchen to um, to how to lower your real estate bill. So I really was leveraging my MBA and my cost cutting um, savvy that I used at the Walt Disney Company um, at the corporate level. But I applied that to the household um, income and then spoke about that. And that's what led to. Um, one of the favorite topics that everybody wanted to know about, which was how I was making my own homemade yogurt um, in my Texas garage and using organic milk to make yogurt. And I was saving, you know, $120 um, a month by doing this. And that was that's what everybody wanted to know about was how to make yogurt, how to make yogurt. So cooking had always been part of my life and, 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 a, and a big piece of it. And I'd, you know, taken classes here and there, but I was not a professional cook. But that that yogurt question um, turned into me finally making a video because I started inviting people into my home to show them how to make yogurt. And you know, it, I still had four kids and diapers and something had to end. Um, so I made this video. And then that's what led to being on Food Network Star, which then led to me winning Food Network Star, which then led to um, the, the show $10 Dinners. And, um, and that, that kind of started it all. And two books, $10 two books. Dinners mm-hmm. and Supermarket, Supermarket Healthy. Market Healthy. Mm-hmm. And I'm working. I'm working on my third book as we as I literally have the um, the executed contract that I haven't opened up for my agent that literally came three days ago uh, on my desk. And what's so, it going to be? Well, it's actually my first non cookbook, um, and it's a it's a book exploring the exploration um, the uh, the intersection of food and faith. Jim, you're an MBA also. You also write a lot. I've read a lot of your writing on HuffPost. Uh, you probably don't make yogurt to the degree that uh, Melissa does. <laughs> Um, but you've tried to use your voice and your platform as a way of helping more people understand um, what the potential of social enterprise is. And uh, as Melissa was talking, I was thinking about you were talking about your husband's idea that you needed a, a project instead of a fifth child. Uh, one of the things I know you've, you, you've written about, Jim, is uh, the search for purpose that a lot of people um, go through. And you must see that in a lot of the people that you serve as well. 
Well, yeah, you know, and if you think of goodwill, it's often referred to as the original social enterprise, whether it was or wasn't, I, I don't even know. What's the best way to understand um, how goodwill works today? Well, goodwill is a, it is a social enterprise. It is a, it is a model that leverages its business. Everybody knows goodwill uh, by its 3,200 stores. Uh, but the power of goodwill isn't the stores, but it's the stories of the people, like uh, the story of Anita, who I shared earlier. And, uh, you know, when it was founded in 1902 by a Methodist minister, uh, it really was about dignity and the power of work. And so goodwills leverage, you know, this business model uh, as a mission delivery vehicle to support people with first-time first time jobs, transitional employment, skills development, and then also to support incremental programming uh, that could be very sector-related or education-related or program-related uh, that meets the needs of their local community. So that that economic model of the um, Goodwill store is not only a mission delivery vehicle, but also a supporter of, of other programming. Uh, and it's very self-sustaining. Now, Goodwills will do other, have a variety of other uh, social enterprises with the, within their umbrella, but that's the big one that people know know about. And I think the the differentiator and from a social enterprise pr- perspective is how do you leverage business to have impact and sustained impact, and that's really what the Goodwill model uh, allows for. It doesn't mean that it's not hard and there's not competitive pressures and Goodwills don't struggle from time to time, but over a hundred years, uh, Goodwills have been able to kind of sustain. Uh, their community service because of that social enterprise model. You, you mentioned competitors. Do you have competitors at least on the retail store side? Yeah, I think I think the the powerful thing about the leaders of goodwill throughout their communities is that they are they are uh, compassionate, but also fierce competitors. They've got compa- comp- for profit online, and they got competition coming at them from every level. Uh, so what that does is it makes them stronger. It makes them be uh, build the capacity to react react to the marketplace, and then uh, when you react to the marketplace, your service levels go up, and you focus on the customer, and more importantly, you focus on the people that the goodwill serve. And I think goodwills have learned how to treat them as customers, uh, and I think that's been a differentiator that has allowed for. Uh, not only success, but sustainability. Do, do you feel like the social impact part of the business is like as understood as you'd like it to be? Or do you feel like the re- – because, you know, I still thought of until I learned a little bit more about Google yeah. Industries as the stores. I'm sure you get this. This is like a big, I'm sure, issue internally. But is there a conscious effort to sort of change that balance a little bit? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a constant discussion throughout the Goodwill Network. Is, do I people imagine. know what we do for our mission? And uh, you know, at the end of the day, Goodwill was um, uh, two years in a row uh, through the World Brand Value Index, the number one um, uh, purpose brand. And you know, so I think generally people connect the dots on the purposefulness and the uh, the impact. Not always do people know the specific programming levels of work. And so, you know, Goodwills are constantly uh, working to convey the stories, the mission, and the programming to the community. But it seems like it's uh, 
you know, it's something we 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 have to do every day. And it's probably because the complexity of the the kind of programming. I mean, each Goodwill themselves is a pretty complex organization with multiple types of programs serving a wide range of populations, you know, meeting their top line, their bottom line, and their people line uh, every day. And that's that's what they're focused on. You know, when we uh, started Share Our Strength, we had this notion at the beginning that uh, charitable dollars would not be enough, that we had to find ways to be more self-sustaining, and that instead of just kind of fighting for our share of the charitable pie, we had to find ways to make that pie grow. So we set off on a whole range of kind of innovative and entrepreneurial activities, mostly in the space of cause-related marketing and corporate marketing and so forth. And it really became a very powerful engine for our growth. And then as we started to talk about it, I started to write about it, see who else was doing this, what we called kind of creating community wealth, because we were creating wealth that wasn't personal or corporate, but it was wealth that was going back into the community. Uh, as I started to do some research, I realized that Goodwill had been, you know, a, a pioneer from the very beginning. That Goodwill was ahead of almost everybody in terms of really thinking that way. And you mentioned uh, social enterprise, which is really a way of saying uh, using kind of entrepreneurial business strategies to generate support so an organization can be more self-sustaining. Or maybe you have your own definition of it. I've never quite known if there was a fixed definition of social enterprise or social entrepreneurship. They kind of get confused. But it really struck me early on that Goodwill was such a big leader in this notion of having to you know, find ways to leverage business skills to be self-sustaining. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the, the beauty of it. And if you think about uh, the millennials of today, uh, and your original question was that of purpose, you see uh, people are really looking to connect the dots on purpose in their lives at all levels. And you see companies uh, really trying to enhance their corporate social responsibility programs from a PR effort to something that's actually substantive and impactful. So I think our society is really focused on, you know, how, as individuals, uh, how do I, how do I uh, have an impact with the, the work that I'm doing? So, you know, goodwill is a just a seasoned model of that. But you see that society is, is striving for that at at many levels. Um, as we start to. Uh wrap up. I don't want to let you off the hook on this conversation about faith, because I know faith is a oh, big part of right. your life, and you're you're writing a book about uh, food and faith. So uh, really what I want to hear from each of you is kind of what's next. As as it pertains to you, Melissa, I'd love to hear about the book and how faith relates. But uh, Jim, um, when we come to you, I also want to hear about what your kind of plan is for where goodwill goes from here. Um, so what's next? Yeah. I, food I'm, and faith. Uh, yes. Oh, I, oh, I know what's next. Trust me, my whole—that's my whole—that's my whole life over the next uh, few months. Um, so, food and faith. I'm—I'm I'm really deeply excited and honored that I'm going to get to write this book on food and faith. I didn't realize how you know I mentioned the um, the food life cycle, you know, from seed to washing the dishes when people leave. Um, I didn't realize that God has been speaking to me through food, through all of these life cycles. There's, there's, God has something to say about food in the Bible in every single one of those life cycle spots on the whole spectrum from seed to washing the dishes. And I think that um, 
there's there's not a lot of voice about that. There's not a lot of conversation. There's some agricultural sustainability conversation going on, mostly in the academic um, Christian world. Um, and there's conversation about bringing people around the table, you know, the church potluck and that, you know, and there's some conversation about feeding the poor. But um, but that's when we're talking about the intersection of food and faith, that seems to be the conversation. And there's so much more. So the book that I'm writing is um, very theologically based, um, but it's also memoir-esque because I realized as I was exploring all of these themes that God has used food in my life Um to draw me in to him and to my purpose. And so a lot of the book is um, memoir-esque, sort of autobiographical um, with theological underpinnings. So it's meant to be a book that is um, entertaining enough to read on the beach, but um, but theologically sound um, and very researched. Um, and um, my hope is that it will invite readers to consider food in a deeper way and their role of how food affects them, you know, with you know, body image. And, you know, we, we have language about, you know, oh, work off that piece of pumpkin pie after Thanksgiving or whatever, you know, as if eating food is sort of something we only deserve to do if we work it off in the gym. Or So there's, there, there are a lot of messages from the world um, that are out there that I wanted to kind of sift through and get to the deep question, which is, what did God mean for food to be to us? And I tell that through stories in my life. So when that book's out, you've got to come back here because that's a question that we've got to talk about uh, more deeply. Uh, Jim Gibbons, um, you're a powerful leader of Goodwill Industries. Where are you taking the organization next? Well, I think, you know, uh, it's a very – it's a very positive signals out there as I look throughout uh, the Goodwill Network. And, you know, what I see is uh, as Goodwills uh, hear the needs in their communities, uh, it's really how do we leverage this amazing infrastructure that Goodwills across the country have built uh, to create more opportunities for work. Uh, But also you see Goodwills springboarding from uh, organizations that are great launch pads for employment, uh, into a mindset of careers, into a mindset of middle skills jobs, uh, how to leverage digital skills for the changing marketplace, and how do you think about individuals uh, really as individuals and customized to meet individuals where they are. Um, you know, I, there's a uh, an author that I've read, and, and I don't know where the original – where the original quote came from, but they they talk about happiness is someone to love, something to do, and something to look forward to. Pretty simple. Uh, pretty powerful, I've always thought. And I think when I translate that into the good world, the good will world, uh, I kind of think of it as, you know, somebody in your life that cares about you, work, something to do, or development, uh, and then something to look forward to, hope. And I think that's uh, the path that Goodwill is on to provide those those elements into the individuals and their communities' lives. And there's a lot of faith in there mm-hmm. as well. So mm-hmm. I want to thank you, Jim Gibbons from uh, Goodwill Industries. Thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. It's uh, great being here. Goodwillindustries.org is the best place to uh, find information about you. Go to Goodwill, goodwill.org and Twitter. We have all of the uh, Twitter, Facebook, all the social, social, media. social media. Yeah. Excellent. And Melissa D. Arabian, melissadarabian.net is the place to find your books. 
your TV, your writings, your speaking schedule, everything you're doing. So glad to have you with us. So thanks so much for having me. Um, and of course, my sister, Debbie Shore, who, who only an 11-year-old would confuse as a chef. Um, <laughs> thanks for being with us, Deb. Never making anything for you again. Thank you. Uh, I'm Billy Shore. You've been listening to Add Passion and Stir. Thanks. Add Passion and Stir is distributed by District Productive. Our senior producer is Carrie Thompson. Our executive producer is Peter Ogburn. Add Passion and Stir is the creation of Billy Shore, Debbie Shore, and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Billy Shore. You're listening to Add Passion and Stir from Share Our Strength.